Well, good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for your word and every page of it, every word of it that you have given as revelation of yourself and your character and your ways and the ways in which you desire us to live together as your people. And so we pray this morning that the entrance of your words would give us light, that the commandments of the Lord would be sweeter than honey, than the drippings of the honeycomb. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is there is great reward. Help us to keep them, even as we are warned by them. We thank you that we are able to hear your word, and we pray that you would open up our eyes this morning, that we might behold wonderful things in your law, and that you might incline our hearts toward your word and not toward selfish gain. In this moment, help us to receive the implanted word with meekness, which is able to save our souls. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're a guest with us, we're in uh, week five of a kind of an in-house sermon series. We're just talking about life in the church and what it means to be devoted to the church after the pattern of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And there we see the Holy Spirit through Luke describe what the life of the early church was like. And we're trying to assess ourselves in light of that vision and see where we can improve and grow in our devotion to Christ and to his church. So if you're a guest, welcome. Um, As you listen in, I hope you are blessed and helped this morning by God's word. Uh, For those of us who have been here these last several weeks, um, just a reminder of where we've been. We're in week five, like I said. We started five weeks ago just looking at the general outline of Acts chapter 2, what the Holy Spirit did in converting these new people through the preaching of the gospel and then bringing them to repentance and faith and baptizing them and joining them to the church. And my big argument in that first sermon was that to be a Christian is to be church-centered. It is to have your life built in and around the people of God. And then several weeks ago, we began looking at those characteristics of a church-centered Christian, those aspects of devotion that those early Christians were devoting themselves to. We began with gathering, because that's essential to everything. Actually, we began with the apostles' teaching. Then we began talking about fellowship a couple of weeks ago. And we're in this kind of mini-series where we're looking at four different aspects of fellowship, what it means to be devoted to the fellowship. A few weeks ago, we talked about the importance of gathering with the local church so that we can encourage one another. And then last week, we kind of unpacked what that encouraging each other actually looks like as we seek to do spiritually intentional good, helping each other in the Christian life to grow spiritually. And this week, what I want us to do is look at the second half of what we looked at last week. You remember, to help each other grow, two components are necessary. There's a positive and there's a negative. There's a, according to Colossians 1, chapter 20, chapter, or Colossians 1.28, Paul described his ministry as proclaiming Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we might be brought to maturity in Christ. So there's two aspects here. There's teaching, which is the encouragement, the sharing of God's word in a positive, uh, instructive sense. And then there's admonishing or correcting or, or in my language today, guarding um, the uh, health of the church. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the role of discipline in the life of the church as a way in which God guards us as his people and protects us from ourselves and from sin. 
Now, three introductory comments, since church discipline is all the rage in the church today. It's so positive and warmly received and welcomed. I just think we don't even probably need to preach a sermon like that. I'll stop being sarcastic now and give you the three introductory comments to kind of set this uh, sermon up and hope to uh, dissuade you from any negative thoughts about such a topic. First of all, discipline, church discipline that is, shouldn't be thought of as some occasional strange or weird thing. Jared Wilson, in a helpful article, wrote the following. He's a, he's a was a pastor in the New England area and now works for Midwestern Seminary over in Kansas City, Missouri. He wrote the following. He said, in churches with healthy discipleship cultures, church discipline is going on all the time in helpful, informal, everyday ways. When the more formal processes of church discipline become necessary, they are much less likely to be carried out too harshly or received strangely. The church will already have a positive training context for knowing that discipleship requires obedience, correction, perseverance, and mutual submission, end quote. So his point is that as we interact with each other in any sort of spiritually meaningful way, we're always helping, helping and sharpening one another, and that is a form of discipline. It's a form of correction, even if it lacks the more formal, whole church, big picture idea. So that's the first introductory comment. Discipline shouldn't be thought of as occasional or strange. Second, discipline needs to be understood in all of its various forms. It's not a one-dimensional reality. There's at least three that I think the Bible addresses. The first is formative discipline. That's what I'm doing now. Preaching, teaching, is a form of discipline. It's a formative one. It's a positive one. It's an instructive one. It's designed to disciple us through instruction. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. Every time you are taught, you are being disciplined. Don't always think of discipline as a negative thing. It's a very positive thing. Second, though, there is corrective discipline. And that's where a brother or sister, or sometimes the whole church, speaks to correct the disciple in their very public, known pattern of sin. And then number three is what we might call preemptive discipline. Preemptive discipline is just what happens on the front end of someone who wants to come into the membership of the church who's not presently walking with Jesus. So 2 John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 picture this kind of person. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So John says, look, there's going to be people that are going to say they are in the light, that they're a Christian, but they don't love Christians. They don't care for Christians, and therefore they're still in darkness regardless of what their mouth professes. So on the front end, it's best to let them know that, lest you welcome them into the membership of the church and have a leaven that will eventually begin to leaven the whole lump as unbelievers are allowed into the membership of the church. So those are just three aspects. I think we need to understand the different forms that discipline can take. Number, number, four, number three is discipline shouldn't be thought of as unloving or harsh. Now, certainly it can be done in unloving and harsh ways. Perhaps, regrettably, some of you may have been on the end of, uh, end of that at, at certain times. I hope not here, but perhaps in other assemblies you have been a part of, and if that is the case, then, then you need to uh, feel no guilt over such treatment. Um, but let me give you four reasons quickly why discipline isn't unloving or harsh, but it's actually very loving. Number one, church discipline shows love for at least four different kinds of people. First of all, the individual. 
that he or she might be warned and brought to repentance. That's a very loving thing to do. Number two, church discipline shows love for the church. Because as we do it, the weaker sheep among us are being protected and guarded. Number three, church discipline shows love for the watching world, that it might see Christ's transforming power in the life of a, of, a, of a group of people. And then number four, church discipline shows love for Christ supremely because it preserves a church that upholds his holy name and seeks to represent him accurately to the world. So that's number three. So we've looked at discipline shouldn't be thought of as an occasional or strange. It shouldn't be misunderstood with, uh, with its various forms. Number three, discipline shouldn't be thought of as unloving or harsh. And fourthly and finally, discipline shouldn't be thought of as punitive or retaliatory. It's not designed to punish or get back at someone. Again, Jared Wilson writes, teaching the process of church discipline is not about filling the church with a sense of dread and covering the floor with eggshells. It's about providing enough visibility about the guardrails and expectations that people can actually breathe more freely, not less. Church discipline rightly exercised is motivated by real, sorrowful love and concern. It will, he says, if we follow the biblical process of church discipline beginning with confidential and humble rebuke of a brother or sister's sin, if unrepentance persists and the circle of visibility widens, Expulsion will be seen as a regrettable and sorrowful necessity and as something intended for a person's repentance and restoration, not for their punishment. And that's the idea. So hope those introductory comments were helpful as we get into the topic today. So three points. We're going to look at three aspects of guarding the fellowship um, as, a, as, a, as a commitment to being devoted to it. Because to be devoted to the fellowship means we must be devoted to guarding it. Not just gathering and growing, but guarding the health of our church fellowship. Here's number one, guarding our integrity, guarding our integrity. Now, if you would turn with me or open your phones and go with me to Matthew 16. We're going to look at a couple of passages in Matthew's gospel from the lips of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, as he talks about the importance of a church guarding its integrity. These are the only two times that I'm aware of in the Gospels that Jesus speaks and uses the word church. And it's in the context of Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 that we're going to look at. But before we read those passages in Matthew 16 and 18, I want to remind us of something. You, as a baptized and ordinary member of a local church, are responsible for protecting the Gospel and the Gospel's ministry in our church by affirming and disaffirming gospel citizens. Let me say that again, and I'll explain it. You, as a baptized Christian and ordinary member of the church, are responsible for protecting the gospel. We talked about that already when we looked at being devoted to the apostles' teaching, that one of the aspects of being devoted to the apostles' teaching is safeguarding it and protecting the gospel. But also, not just the teaching of the church but also the membership of the church responsible for protecting the gospel and the gospel's ministry by affirming and disaffirming gospel citizens. Because as we're going to see here in Matthew 16 and 18, the New Testament and the words of our Savior Jesus ultimately charge the gathered church, that is our congregation, 
with the responsibility for seeing to it that the members of our local church live up to their professions of faith and covenant with one another. Now let's look at a couple of passages to underscore that reality. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 18. So this is where we're not going to read the entire context, but Jesus has already asked Peter, his main, one of his main disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter gives him this litany of responses. Some people say that you're this guy, this guy, this guy. But then Jesus directs the question to him, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father revealed this to you. And then in verse 18, he picks up on the heels of that proclamation and says the following, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, that is the confession of what you have said about me being the Christ, the son of the living God, and as your role as a foundational apostle, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that's a familiar passage. Jesus is going to build his church, Gates of hell aren't going to keep it back from happening. He's going to do it. He's going to do it based upon the reality that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he is who Peter said he is. But notice verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, you may wonder, what does that mean? Well, let's look at Matthew 18. That's where he answers it. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. So in Matthew 16, we see that Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the apostles. Okay, and that is the authority to what I'm going to argue is affirm and disaffirm gospel citizens to indicate true Christians from Christians who are not walking up to their, at least maybe professing, but not living up to their profession. So Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if you refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You know what it means now, right? It's church discipline is what he means. So what are the keys that Jesus gives to the the apostles who then give them to the church, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? Well, the keys mean the authority to determine what a true gospel profession is and who a true gospel professor is. In other words, who, what the true gospel is and who really believes it. Now, to whom is Jesus speaking in this passage in Matthew 18? To the pastors? No, to the church, which includes the pastors. But it's, the, it's, a, whole, it's a whole assembly calling. So this means that discipline, that is affirming and disaffirming gospel citizens, 
is the job of every church member. It's not just the job of leadership, but the role of every member of the church. So what does this mean? We've we've talked about verse 19, and we've seen, you know, maybe you've heard that language of binding on earth and loosing. What does that mean? Well, when something is bound, it is revealed, and according to Jesus, when something is bound on earth, it's it's verified as true. So if the person who is being disciplined responds appropriately and is recovered and is brought back to Jesus, it is verified that they are, in fact, a true Christian. But if the church goes through this process, speaking to them one-on-one, bringing two, speaking it to the church, and they don't listen, then they are, they, are to, they are to treat that person as an unbeliever, which means they are to remove them from the membership of the church. doesn't mean they're, they can't come to the assembly or, or be around Christians. It just means they have, they're not seen by the assembly as someone who is walking with Jesus and therefore should be given the Jesus jersey to wear as if they're a Christian. And that has, that has, that therefore the church has loosed that reality. And that's a scary thing to be on the receiving end of. Because according to Jesus, what the church says, if it's basing its assessment exclusively on the gospel and the word of God and not on any sort of random thing that just some person thinks, then what, what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. And that Jesus is actually speaking through the church as the church goes about this process. Now, why is this so important to guard our integrity like this? Why does Jesus call upon us to do this? Well, this has been the job of the people of God from the very beginning, brothers and sisters. What was Adam's job? Adam's job was to protect the temple, protect the garden from the impact of sin and evil in it. And just as the first priest, Adam, was charged with maintaining the purity of that garden temple, and the Old Testament priests were charged with watching over the physical temple and guarding its integrity and purity, So we, as a kingdom of priests, are called to watch over the church, which is the true temple of God, according to the New Testament, and to work to keep it consecrated to God. And keeping the church consecrated to God, friends, is an everyday job. Was Adam supposed to keep his eyes peeled for lying serpents only on Sundays? Now, of course here, the job is bigger than just showing up at members' meetings and voting on new members. But it's not less than that. Brothers and sisters, when you are called upon to affirm the testimony of someone that your elders are recommending for membership, you are doing eternal kingdom business. It is serious that you get to know that person, that you read that testimony, that you know who you are receiving in your midst. It's imperative that when the church is doing that, when it's inviting members, that into the membership that, that you get, let your yes be truly yes, and that you let your no be truly no. So it involves working to know and be known by your fellow church members. You cannot affirm and give oversight to people you don't know, not with integrity anyhow. That doesn't mean that you're responsible to personally know every member of this church in a deep and meaningful way. That's not possible. However, we do this work collectively. And if everyone is seeking to know and be known by other Christians, this will happen and the Holy Spirit will work and this will take care of itself. But we have to take personal responsibility ourselves 
to widen our circles and get to know the people in our church, especially those that on the front end we're receiving into our membership. So I want to just underscore that, that that's your responsibility. It's not just, yeah, okay, I don't see any problems, and the pastors are good guys, so we recommend them. You know, We want you to conscientiously be able to say yes, and that's why we try to give you time to get to know people we're receiving into membership, have time to read their testimonies, have time to speak to them personally, not in any sort of questioning, condemning way with a, with a view to kind of, oh, I just want to search out and see if this is really true. That's not the case, but rather to, to, to befriend them, know them, love them, care for them, and, and really feel like, yes, this person, as far as I can tell, is, is genuinely walking with Jesus. Not perfectly, not looking for that, but genuinely understands the gospel and is genuinely seeking to follow the Lord with his life or her life. So that's what I mean by guarding our integrity, and that's the, the first aspect of being devoted to the fellowship in this way. Secondly, guarding our purity guarding our purity. This is the reason for doing this hard work on the front end of receiving new uh, members so that we might guard our purity. Would you turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the passage that John read for us earlier. And we're not going to go through all 13 verses, but I do want us to look at just the first five. Now notice a few things. First of all, in verse 1, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's received a report from members in the, the church that actually there is uh, sin in their midst, and, it's, and it's, it's grievous sin. It's big sin. Um, the sin that they're tolerating is a sin of immorality that's not even found, what he says, among the pagans. It's like you don't even hear about this kind of stuff among unbelievers where you would expect to find it, but you guys have it in the church and you're not even dealing with it. This is awful. This is a failure of integrity and purity. And it's a sexual immorality that he describes as a man having his father's wife, assuming his stepmother. And their response is, well, we'll get to their response in just a second. So here's, here, here's what we're talking about. This is, this is big sin. Okay, this is big sin, this is known sin, this is public sin. So most sin that we deal with in the life of the church does not get handled on the 1 Corinthians 5 level. Okay, it gets handled between us and God or between us and another brother and sister. And that's where it stops. And praise God for that. However, when there is outward, significant, and unrepentant sin, that requires more public work. And this is very outward, this is very public, and this is very unrepentant. It's deliberate, and it's done in the midst of the assembly with no regard for repentance whatsoever. And that's where Paul speaks, that's why Paul speaks so strongly of it. He doesn't speak this way always, as we'll see. He usually speaks very gently in how we restore each other. But this is very public, and it requires a more public call for repentance. So look at verse 2. It's also reflected in the Corinthians' attitude. He says, and you are arrogant. That's unbelievable to think about, that a church is arrogant, proud of such a thing. Maybe they're just, look, we're so gracious. Look who's coming among us, the lost of the law. I mean, look at this. They're just coming, among, and, and they're using it as a sign of like spiritual pride. Like, we must be some important church if really, really sinful people like, you know, live among us. 
And of course he says, absolutely, we should have sinners in our midst, but not a person who's committed in, in the membership of the church to living in sin. He says, ought you rather to mourn? That should be your posture. You should be sad about this. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He goes right to the, the end of the church discipline process. He skips the first two steps because it's very known, it's very public. And obviously, Paul has quite a bit of knowledge about this situation that informs that judgment. Then verse 3, you notice, who does Paul finally hold accountable for tolerating this person's sin? Notice verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, when you are assembled, who's the you? The church. It says, when you church are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man. You, you, you the church. You plural. So in the matter of discipline, Paul doesn't first address the Corinthian elders, but the Corinthian church itself. Notice also 2 Corinthians. Hold your finger there before we come back. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 6 through 8, where again, he calls upon the church to act. Beginning at verse 5, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you would rather turn to forgive and comfort him, and he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know that whether you are obedient in everything. So we don't know exactly who this person is, but perhaps it was the person in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, that this person was addressed. They were brought to repentance, and now the, the Corinthians are responding in a wrong way. They're not restoring him. They're not forgiving him. They're not welcoming him back. And, but my point is, is at verse 6, he says the punishment by the majority is enough. The majority there is the majority of the church that agreed that this man should be disciplined. So my point is, is that the you who Paul is talking about for tolerating the sin in the midst is the church. Now, how does Paul tell them to specifically address this sin? Now, we saw in verse 5, it's rather sharp. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, that is, you are put him out of the membership of the church. And he says in verse 10 or verse, nine, or verse 11, you are not to associate with him, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Not talking about unbelievers. We should associate with them regardless of their lifestyles and love them and befriend them and care for them as our neighbors and friends. But when a church member is claiming to be a Christian, and willfully and publicly and unrepentantly living in a way that's contrary to the gospel, then that person must be confronted and, and disassociated. And he says, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul says? It's not, is it not those in the church whom you are to judge? You, the church, in the church? God judges those outside, so purge the evil person from among you. So this is rather sharp. Again, it's, it's hard. This is a very strong word from the apostle because of the nature of the sin and the way the church was handling it. So we have to understand that. And I would say that this is the exception. In the vast majority of circumstances, the manner of our conf confrontation should be discreet, gentle, and watchful. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. 
And this is the general pattern that the church follows in unextreme cases. Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's interesting that the bearing of burdens there has, is, is not so much, it's a very specific kind of burden that we're called to bear, which is the burden of people struggling with sin in our midst that we're willing to wade into and help them to overcome it. That's what it means to bear a burden in this context. Of course, there are other burdens that we, we bear together as the church, but I just wanted you to see that in the context. So brothers, if anyone, he says, is caught in any transgression, there, there it is, they're caught, they're snagged. You who are spiritual should restore him. How do you do it? In a spirit of gentleness. Spirit of gentleness. Keeping watch on yourself lest you do be tempted. So it's not a harsh thing, it's a gentle thing, it's a loving thing. Now, who does Paul call upon to rescue the fellow church member who's caught in sin? You who are spiritual. Now, does, now who, do, who, do you, who is that? Who are spiritual people in Galatians? All right, what precedes Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2? The fruit of the Spirit. Who possesses the fruit of the Spirit? Christians. Okay, so you look here back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those, verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its spiritual desires. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual. Okay, so the, the idea is you're an obedient, fruit-bearing Christian, and you're going after someone who is caught in sin. So every fruitful church member is responsible for this. So let me just kind of bend, round this off a little bit with this final application regarding purity and pursuing purity in the church. The church is ultimately responsible for ensuring that its members remain faithful to the gospel. Listen, brothers and sisters, all of us will give an account to God for how we have handled this responsibility. If we all are accountable in some sense for the godly testimony of members in our church, how ought we to respond when someone sins against us? Or you come to learn about serious sin in someone else's life. Every member must know other members well enough to help them remain faithful to the gospel. Now listen, and I'm going to say more about this in just a moment, but lest we think, because this thing can so get twisted and misunderstood. When we come into membership of the church, we come in as sinners. Those are the only people that are welcome in the membership of the church. It's people who acknowledge that they're a mess, that they need Jesus, that they have no hope apart from him, and that he's in the process of recovering, renewing, and redeeming them. Those are the only people. That's who came into the early church in Acts 2. Brand new believers out of a life of paganism, baptized and brought into the members of the church. You don't have to pass some sort of spiritual character test. You don't have to spend 10 years growing in godliness to prove that you're a Christian before you're received in the membership of the church. That's not what this is about. 
The, the church is a, is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints. But here's the point. Hospitals get people well. They don't ignore them in their sickness. I mean, Dr. Mark, I'm looking at him right here. He did my surgery on my hip and my femur when I had my car accident. I mean, that'd be awful. He probably wanted to do this. He should have. Walk in the room, he's like, oh, it's Mark. No way, I'm not going to do that. Let the guy suffer. No, he came in with his skill and his expertise, and he fixed me. Because that's what a good doctor does. And if we're a true hospital and we truly care for each other, we're going to nurse each other back to health and get each other where we need to be. That's all it is. So the only sin that's not welcome in the church is unrepentant sin. That's the only sin that's not welcome. You can bring your sin in, but you can't keep it. You can't keep it. You got to walk away from it because Jesus calls you to walk away from it. It's part of taking up the cross and following him. And we help each other to do that. So I just wanted to underscore that, that we're a loving community that's a hospital. We care for one another. We watch over one another. We nurse each other back to health when, we're, when sin has caught us or led us away from following Jesus. And it takes the church to do that. It's the whole community to do that. So that's the first two points, guarding our integrity and guarding our purity. Now let's talk about number three, guarding our unity. Guarding our unity. Because this is another aspect of guarding the fellowship, protecting the unity of the fellowship. Not just protecting its integrity and not just protecting its purity, but protecting its unity as well. Would you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? We'll go back to 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. So we'll go back to 1 Corinthians now and look at chapter 1. And notice verse 10 what Paul tells these Christians to do in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So what does he appeal to Christians to do? Be united, agree, love one another, have the same mind, the same judgment. Now, observe all the ways that he states his appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's invoking God's name in, his, in this command because this is something Jesus prayed for in John 17. He cares about this. That all you agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you be united. He's pleading. He's appealing on the basis of Jesus to agree and not be divided from one another. So what does this tell us about the importance of issues of division for the Apostle Paul in the church? Why is unity so important? Well, Jesus prayed, remember, in John 17, I just mentioned it, that we would all be brought to complete unity. In John 17, verses 21 and 23, but the question is why? Why did Jesus pray that? So that the world may know that you sent me. It's about the world knowing the real Jesus by looking at a unified church. Unity in diversity is crucial to the health and effectiveness of the church. It is fundamental to the display of God's Trinitarian character because in God, you see 
three in one. You see unity in the midst of diversity, and he wants that reflected in the life of his church. It's also central to the gospel's mission to subvert hierarchy and ethnocentric pride in a culture. Because what they see when they see the assembly, what the world should see when it sees the assembly of believers, is a people who are diverse, no reason these people should be friends, they disagree about tons of stuff, they don't see eye to eye on lots of things, but they love Jesus and he seems to be enough for them. And the world can't, can't get around that. Political parties can't get around that. No other group in the, in the country can rally around something without either making everyone exactly the same in some sort of uniform sense or just saying, I'll come in, whatever you want to do, we're fine with, which is really no unity at all. But the church has this beautiful because of the power of the gospel, has this beautiful way of bringing unity in the midst of diversity. It's one of the evidences that the gospel is true. So it's critical, unity is critical to the church's witness as a counterculture that reveals the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers. A church community that's comprised of natural-born enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake, and who worship and serve the same God, stops onlookers in their tracks. A community of people from every background, personality, side of the tracks, cultural background, family history, ethnicity, gender, age, class, education, political affiliation, all united under the banner of Jesus' blood and righteousness is the most powerful argument we have for the truthfulness of the gospel. So if you care about the gospel and you care about Jesus' name, you must care about the unity of the church. Period. Period. And there will be people who come to try to divide the church in the name of Jesus. They, they will claim they love Jesus more and they see Jesus more rightly and they follow Jesus more faithfully. This is not true. If they were following Jesus, they would care about the unity of his people and they would strive not to be divisive. And this is never more needed than now, where our culture is literally fragmenting daily, becoming more and increasingly, and I almost believe impenetrably divided. When the rest of our world can't seem to agree on anything or bear to be around people who are different, let it not be so among the church, in our church. We must present a powerful alternative or market. We will lose our saltiness and we will lose our light. We have nothing to offer the world. All men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34 and 35. So that's why Paul cares about it so much. That's why he's appealing to the church at Corinth to preserve unity. Now look at verse 11, what was reported to him. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling, quarreling, fighting, arguing, disputing, disagreements among you, my brothers. What I mean, and then he begins to describe what the nature of that quarrel is all about. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So what's the nature of this? Why do people do this? It's because we like people who are like us. That's what this church is doing. They're liking the leaders that are like them. 
and that fragments the church. So he's got people in the church saying, oh, I follow Paul. You know what Paul would say to that person? I don't want you to follow me. Quit it. I'm not, my ego's not stroked by that. I follow Paul, but I follow Peter. Oh, I follow, doesn't it sound so, so, so spiritual? I follow holy men of God. You're in sin. You're supposed to be following one man, Jesus. That's it. And that's why he says in verse 13, is Christ divided? See, they've lost their Christ-centered focus. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then he just says, verse 14, look, I'm thankful I didn't baptize hardly any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one maybe say they were baptized into my name. You can't use that argument. Verse 16, I now, he says, oh, wait, I did baptize also the household of Stephens. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. That's Paul getting distracted a little bit. But he's trying to, again, he's trying to underscore the fact you can't, don't be claiming that you're following me. Okay, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So how does Paul respond to this? Does he respond by saying, oh, great, well, you guys who follow me, you come follow me, and we'll split the church, and you'll, we'll form the first church of Paul, and then you guys go with Cephas, and you'll be uh, the Cephas church, and then we'll get Apollos, and he'll be the Apollo, uh, 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 Ap- Ap- Apollos assembly, you know, to keep the double A's, and then we'll get, a, a, you know, I follow Christ, and then we'll have the Christian church over here. He says, no, 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 we're not splitting this Corinthian church into four churches. We're having one church. And so he says to them, how do you do that? How does Paul respond? He responds by reinstating Christ as their focus. He says, who are you supposed to be? Who died for you? In whose name were you baptized into? Christ. So we are a Christian church. We're not first church of Paul or first church of Apollos or first church of Cephas. Bobby Jameson says, church unity is usually fragile because it's built from the wrong stuff. Unity around cultural customs and personal preferences is brittle. Put a little pressure on it and it will shatter. But unity around the gospel is strong and flexible like a sturdy wood frame house built on a good foundation. When storms blow against it, it may sway and groan a little in the wind, but it will hold together. So how can we tell if our unity is really founded on the gospel or not? Right? Well, Bobby Jameson says again, the test of this is whether we can love fellow members who confess the same faith, yet differ from us over politics, schooling options, the foods we eat, or music preferences. Can we put their interests before our own? Can we embrace our brothers and sisters who are united with us in the gospel but who differ from us about any number of issues? If not, then our unity is not founded on the gospel but on human preferences and traditions. End quote. And that's exactly what the Corinthians are dealing with. They're uniting around the wrong person. See, when division in the the church happens, it always happens around a person. Somebody's trying to get a person on their side and claiming authority from that person. But what Paul says is, you must have the same mind and the same judgment about what you're fundamentally gearing toward as a church. Who are you fundamentally in allegiance to? We're fundamentally in allegiance to one person, and that is Christ who was crucified 
and in whose name we were baptized. So let me conclude with this helpful diagram. This is, this is a, a, a diagram about, you know, what issues are worth dividing over and what should really split a church. If you look on the left-hand axis vertically, there's the importance of the issue, high or low. And then on the, on the bottom axis, going horizontally, you have the clarity of the issue in Scripture, low or high. The only circumstance, brothers and sisters, where unity is secondary is when the importance of the issue is very high and its clarity in Scripture is very high. In other words, Scripture recognizes this is of first importance and it's very clear about it, like the gospel and the integrity of the gospel message. But look, where the importance of the issue might be high, but the clarity of Scripture is low on that issue, unity is primary, being united, not dividing over it. Where the importance of the issue is low and the, un- and, and the clarity of Scripture is low, unity is primary. Where the importance of the issue is low, but even if the clarity of Scripture is high on it, but Scripture puts a lower level of importance on that issue, unity is secondary, or unity is primary still. So unity has only become secondary in the church when the importance of the issue is high and the clarity of Scripture on the issue is high. In that sense, unity is secondary. But in every other sense, unity is always primary in the church. So how can we pursue this? I want to give you a couple of texts before I close. I won't have time to turn you to them, but I encourage you to write them down in your notes and meditate on them because they're, they're really, really important. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 calls us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and then the verses surround that tell us how. And then Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is another passage that tells us how we can pursue this unity. But we ultimately, brothers and sisters, guard this unity by the one another's of the New Testament. Did you know that at least, according to my calculations, 33% of the one another's in the New Testament are devoted to unity. One in every three of them. Another one in every three is devoted to love and deference. So we could say 68% of the one another's in the New Testament or 60, 66% of the one another's are devoted to, to unity. How about 100%? You know what the other 33 are? Humility. A hundred percent of the one another's. If the church practices the one another's, let me give you some of them in closing. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble against one another. Be of the same mind. Accept one another. Wait for one another. Don't bite and devour one another. Don't provoke or envy one another. Gently bear with one another. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving to one another. Bear with one another. Strive to do good to one another. Don't repay evil to one another. Don't slander one another. Don't confess Confess sins to one another, love one another, humbly serve one another, bear with one another, greet one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, value one another, serve one another, wash one another's feet, don't be proud, associate with one another regardless of the social position, submit to one another, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, don't judge one another, and don't put a stumbling block in the way of a brother or sister. Carry one another's burdens. Speak truthfully to one another. Don't lie to one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Spur one another on. Pray for one another and offer hospitality to one another. 
I think those are all things that we're commanded to do as a church. All of them. And if we all did them faithfully, empowered by the Holy Spirit, motivated by the gospel, then we would guard our integrity, our purity, and our unity, wouldn't we? And so may we, with fresh resolve and fresh pleading, which I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to give us now, resolve to do that for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Worship team, you can come. Father, we thank you so much for your rod and your staff. You as the Lord, our shepherd, have a rod and a staff, and they comfort us. They lead us, and they correct us. Thank you, Lord, for being our good shepherd. Thank you for showing us in your word what we're called to be, and we confess, God, we can't do it without your help. So we need your help, and we conclude this time together in your word pleading for that help. Help us to be a one another kind of church that loves each other and cares for one, and each, one another according to the pattern that we have been given, the pattern of sound words that we find in your scripture. And may through that, you equip us to guard our integrity and purity and unity, all so that the world might know that, G Jesus, you were sent from the Father. That's the whole purpose of all this. It's not about having a more comfortable church experience. It's about the glory of God. It's about preserving the integrity and beauty of your name. And so help us to be preeminently concerned about your glory in all things and preeminently devoted to our Lord Jesus as central in all things that we might love each other the way you have loved us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.
Okay, a couple announcements. Um, Lord's Supper tonight, 5 p.m., join us. Um, Reach Ladies Bible Study is continuing tomorrow night, Monday, uh, 6.30 at the Withrow's home. Uh, you can sign up, ladies, for the retreat that's coming March 16th and 17th. There's information in the lobby as soon as you walk out the door on your left. And uh, before I give the benediction, Pastor Ted. Just a couple of thoughts. Uh, this wonderful sermon, I think, stimulated our hearts and our minds in so many different ways. Um, as we think about unity, um, when we sometimes vote on issues as a church, we purposely have a three-quarters requirement for officers because if it was close, that, that's not good. That means there's a lot of people who disagree. And we have a two-thirds uh, majority normally, just for normal votes. So there'll be times, and there have been times, when we've voted on something as a church that a lot of you rightfully didn't agree with. And that's great, because as Pastor Mark taught, we think differently, we, we have different ideas. But when that decision has been made, and the majority has spoken, we should all have an attitude, you know what, that's not what I thought was right, but that's the will of God declared by the majority of God's people. I still think it wasn't wise, but I'm not going to let that eat me up. I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to be hurt. I'm not going to leave the church. And I say that because some people have literally left our church, not over sin, not over sin, but over a difference of opinion. And that's not the kind of maturity that Pastor Mark is leading us toward. I love these sermons. He's doing such a tremendous job. I just had one other thought. Soon we're going to be voting on a potential, this is premature, we're going to do this later, but we agreed as elders that I should say something about this, and maybe I'll say something one more time. We're going to be voting on a potential deacon, Tom Pope, and then in the future a few more. If you have issues with why you don't think we should elect Tom, you should come to your pastors because the pastors are leading. And the last time I read Hebrews 13, it said, obey those who have the rule over you and submit to their authority. That sounds cultic. If you think it's cultic, then you have an issue with God's word. It isn't cultic. We don't ever want just blind obedience. So you have every right to disagree with the pastors. But you should come to us and say, Pastor, here's my problem. I'm struggling with this. And you know what? You might end up helping us. We might actually end up thinking, maybe this isn't a wise thing. On the other hand, we might end up helping you. But it's not good to disagree with your pastor's leadership and never speak a word to them. That happened when we chose our last two elders. It shocked us that there were nine people who voted against one of them and seven against another. And no one, not a single person, came to any of the elders to say, here's what I'm struggling with. So you don't have to agree with this. We can be wrong. Please understand, we do not want blind obedience ever. But we do want communication. We want, we want you to be united with one another. We want you to be united with our leadership. And we will, we will humbly listen to you anytime you think our course of action has, is foolish. And we'll totally affirm your right to vote no. But never, ever, ever vote no on an issue like that without sharing your convictions with your pastors. That's part of unity. That's all I wanted to say. Um, hope I haven't, well, taken too much of your time, but it's, a, it's, it's an application of the principles that Pastor Mark has been preaching. 
about church unity. So you come, Mark, and give us our benediction. Romans 15, 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in his encouragement.